0: I'm Joel Parker
1: and I'm Susan Moran this is how on earth the show that makes you smarter today is Tuesday March 27th 2012
0: coming up how our brains form habits how habits serve us and how we can reshape the bad ones
2: this capacity to form habits is amazing it, mm. it has made mammals and a number of other species enormously successful
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: High in the sky, 60 to 65 miles above the Earth's surface, winds rush through a little understood region of Earth's atmosphere at speeds of 200 to 300 miles per hour, lower than a typical satellite's orbit, higher than where most planes fly. This upper atmosphere jet stream makes a perfect target for a particular kind of scientific experiment, the sounding rocket. These small rockets, only 35 to 40 feet long, fly short parabolic flights that last 8 to 10 minutes. Last night, about five and a half hours ago, NASA launched five such rockets in quick succession all within a few minutes to study these high-altitude winds and their intimate connection to the complicated electrical current patterns that surround the Earth. First noticed in the 1960s, the jet stream studied by these rockets is at altitudes more than 10 times higher than the lower jet stream through which passenger jets fly and which is reported in weather forecasts. The rocket experiment, called the Anomalous Transport Rocket Experiment, or ATREX, is designed to gain a better understanding of the high-altitude winds and help scientists better model the electromagnetic region of space that can damage man-made satellites and disrupt communication systems. The experiment will also help explain how the effects of atmospheric disturbances in one part of the globe can be transported to other parts of the globe in a mere day or two. These rockets launched from NASA's Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia and released a chemical tracer into the air over the Atlantic Ocean at altitudes from 50 to 90 miles. The chemical, a substance called trimethyl aluminum, forms milky white clouds that allow those on the ground to see High-altitude winds and track them with cameras. Launching the rockets in close succession is so the trails can all be seen at the same time.
1: Most people consider the fats in our cell membranes as just the bricks and mortar that hold the skins, the cells' skin, together. But new research indicates that the fats may actually be directing a lot of cellular action. For
3: more, here's how on Earth, Shelley Schlender. To survive and thrive, the trillions of cells within our bodies must communicate at just the right moment and in just the right way. One key to this is, well, keys and locks. In general, a cell receives instructions when a key, such as a protein or other molecule, comes through the bloodstream to a cell, then delivers an instruction or sends in food or some other thing. But cells don't just take any delivery. To prevent things such as viruses or random instructions from disrupting a cell, any key must prove itself by fitting into a specific lock that's embedded in the membrane of that cell. Those locks are known as receptors. Like the keys, the receptors are generally made of proteins. Once receptors receive the right signals, these signals will be transmitted to a cellular headquarter through networks of proteins, closely interacting with one another, again like keys and locks. So a great deal of research into human health focuses on how proteins interact with one another. Now, research reveals that those protein keys and locks are strongly influenced by another molecule that's common within cell membranes. It's lipids, also known as fats. Most researchers have considered those membrane fats as simply building blocks that hold the cell together. But Juan wa Cho, a chemistry professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, says those membrane fats are more than mortar and bricks.
2: Lipids are a very, very dynamic, active molecule
0: that makes a decision, but not just the bricks that form the wall.
3: When it comes to clear communication about just which keys approach, recognize, and bind with locks... Cho says that a cell membrane's fats may be triggering just as many actions as the proteins do.
0: Lipids are actually the molecule that can determine how proteins recognize their their interaction partners and how proteins are activated and how proteins move around. So it's a very important regulatory molecule.
3: Cho says that many researchers have observed that membrane fats occasionally seem to influence protein interactions. Joe suspected that those interactions were common, and he had two powerful clues. First, while many keys are proteins, some are fats, such as the hormones cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, and other lipids found in the cell membrane. That was one clue. Another clue was that many protein messengers function like skeleton keys. They tend to open many receptors, or they interact with several partners once they're inside the cell. Yet despite this loosey-goosiness, Cho says many cell functions are precise. His latest research documents that fats in cell membranes are frequently determining when an easygoing lock and key should become much more particular. As for what lies ahead, Cho says he wants to figure out how sickness affects the way fats control protein interactions.
0: Different disease conditions when cells get infected by, let's say, virus and all those, yes, cellular lipid composition changes. And uh, that has a dramatic effect on on how a cell is how a cell can survive.
3: Cho's research about how fats help grease communication will be in the April 27th issue of Molecular Cell. And it's online now. For A How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Thanks to Shelley for that report.
0: Today, March 27th, Austrian Reiner Blatt, a pioneer in quantum computing, is receiving the German Nobel German Physical Society's highest award in experimental physics, the Stern-Gerlach Medal. The German Physical Society is the oldest and largest physics society in the world. Blatt has excelled in controlling the quantum bits or qubits that store information. In his experiment, the qubits are ions. Quantum computers will be very fast. Using special algorithms, problems can be solved that are impossible now with standard computers. One key algorithm... Factors numbers into primes in one step. Here's Dave Weinland, an expert at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder. Modern data encryption, secret uh, coding is done with an algorithm that would be compromised if you could, if you could perform this factoring algorithm with a quantum computer. The scientists can use quantum computers to develop unbreakable encryption systems. That gets the attention of government agencies. Qubits don't represent a single state, like 0 or 1, but 0 and 1 simultaneously. This quantum property is called superposition. When 8 qubits are joined to form a qubyte, there are 256 simultaneous states. And 300 qubits? All these possibilities, they add up to a number of memory states that if you had a classical computer composed of all the matter in the universe, you couldn't store that much information. Those available states can be operated on together thanks to other quantum processes. Since 2005, Blatt's team has held the record for the number of qubit ions that can be operated with quantum algorithms. The record is now 14. For more information, visit the Innsbruck University's Quantum Optics and Spectroscopy webpage at www.quantumoptics.at. Thanks to Jim Poland for that report.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you're like most of us, you've tried over and over again to break a bad habit, be it procrastinating, gorging on chocolate chip cookies every night, or letting bills pile up without paying them. And you know how hard it is to kick bad habits. On the other hand, actually most habitual habits are super helpful. A new book called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, Sheds Life on the Science of Habit Formation. It explores how habits can serve or harm individuals as well as companies and societies. Charles Duhigg is the author of the new best-selling book. He's an investigative reporter at the New York Times. I spoke with Charles a few days ago on the phone. Here's our conversation. So how do you define
2: habit? So a habit is a behavior that at one point we make a decision to do, and then we stop making a decision but the behavior con- continues nonetheless. And, and one of my favorite examples is backing the car out of the driveway, which I actually lived in Denver for a little while, so I imagine everyone <laughs> listening knows this, particularly when it's snowy. that The first couple times you back your car out of your driveway, it's really complicated, right? You have to pay a lot of attention to what you're doing. But <laughs> That's why I don't have a driveway. A week, right, that's why you don't have a driveway. <laughs> but within a week... It just becomes a habit. You can, you can think about the day ahead, or you can fiddle with the radio, or you can talk to your kids, or remember that you left your kids lunch on the counter. It becomes a habit, and, and that's what's kind of amazing about our brain's ability. So
1: it's when the brain basically goes in autopilot and stores the things we want to keep doing over and over again in this particular center of the brain?
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, so what we've learned in the last decade is a tremendous amount about the neurology of habit formation. And this has been kind of transformative in our ability to create habits and change habits and understand what's going on. And what neurologists have figured out is that there's neurologically what's called a habit loop at the core of every habit. There's, and this loop has three parts. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for the automatic behavior to start unfolding. And then there's a routine, which is the behavior itself. And then finally, a reward. And that reward is how our brain remembers or learns to store this pattern for future use. And, and when most people think about habits, they think about the routine, just the behavior, right? I want to go running or I want to eat better. Right. But they don't think about the cue and the reward. And what we've learned from, lab, from laboratory experiments is that the cue and the reward are the key to creating new habits or changing old habits.
1: And I thought you gave a fascinating example. I mean, a bunch of them in the book, both for people, institutions, and society at large. But this one little monkey called Julio. Describe yeah. how that loop was experimented on.
2: So so Julio is this this monkey, a macaw monkey, that um, a scientist named Wolfram Schultz was, was able to put a, a, a sensor, an electrode, essentially, in Julio's mind to measure... What he was interested in measuring was what we call a happiness response. The scientist says he doesn't like to call things happiness or unhappiness. He calls it a reward response. But in essence, what he could measure was what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, all right, good (laughs) time." And so what he did is he put Julio in a chair, and there was a computer monitor in front of him and a tube dangling from the ceiling that that led to Julio's lips. So Julio would watch the computer monitor, and shapes would come on, yellow squiggles and blue squares. And it was Julio's job to press a lever whenever a shape appeared on the screen. And if Julio did it right, a drop of blackberry juice would come down the tube onto (laughs) Julio's lips. And he liked it very much. Julio loved blackberry juice. (laughs) He was a big fan. And so what Wolfram Schultz, the scientist, wanted to figure out was, so when does Julio's, and how does Julio's brain start experiencing and anticipating the pleasure that that juice provides? So the first couple of times that Julio sees the squiggles, he, you know, doesn't really know what's going on. He touches the lever, he gets a drop of juice, and we see this reward response, right? Within his brain, his brain it's, we see this like spike in happiness that basically is what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, I just got a drop of juice. And the reward response occurs whenever Julio gets a drop of juice. And as the experiment proceeds, an interesting change happens. Schultz just does the same thing over and over and over again, right? There's some squiggles on the screen, which is a cue. Julio touches the lever. That's the routine. He gets a drop of juice, the reward. Right. And his brain spikes with this pleasure response. Over time, that pleasure response spike starts happening earlier and earlier, before the juice even arrives. It gets to the point when just seeing the shapes on the screen Simply being exposed to the cue causes Julio's brain to start having a pleasure response because he's anticipating the juice arriving. Mm -hmm. So then Schultz changes the experiment again. What he does this time is he starts delaying the juice or he waters it down sometimes so it's only half as sweet. So mean. Exactly. And something interesting happens is that Julio, at this point, expects the juice. He starts experiencing pleasure as soon as he sees the squiggles on the screen, the cue for the habit. If the juice doesn't arrive or if it's less sweet than he expects, a pattern that looks somewhat similar to depression starts in Julio's brain. Oh, fascinating. And we know from other experim- experiments that what Julio is feeling is craving.
1: And Julio's so then what? He
2: anticipates yeah. the juice. And if he doesn't get it, he craves it.
1: So then sort of begs the question, when does habit become addiction? And how do we sort of identify the loop in those terms and, and are somehow able to break it or recode it?
2: Yeah, so this is a great question, and it's one that addiction specialists struggle with. Because at this point, the, defi- the technical definition of addiction involves a habit dysfunction. Right? There are some people in this world who we know are biochemically addicted or pre, 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 predisposed to addiction, to, to physical chemicals mm-hmm. like you know, alcohol. But a very, very small number of people are biochemically predisposed to addiction. So for most, most of us, people, it's something
1: environmental. There's some trigger we just respond to.
2: Well, yeah. What it is is that most people who have drinking problems or other things that we consider addictions, what they really have are habit dysfunctions. And one of the best examples of this is smoking, mm-hmm. because we've all been trained to think of smoking as you know something—the nicotine being physically addictive. And it is. Nicotine is physically addictive. But that addiction is gone about 100 hours after your last cigarette. We know this from medical experiments. Once the nicotine is out of your blood system, you don't actually have a physical addiction to cigarettes anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet we all know people who two weeks or two months or you know, two years after they stop smoking, they still feel that urge every morning, right? They they wake up and they get the paper and they sit down with it, and that's usually when they had a cigarette and they feel the urge for a cigarette. Right?
1: They're sitting with their what's, secondhand smoke.
2: Exactly. What, right. What's going on is that that's the habit reemerging. It's not a physical addiction, mm-hmm. and yet that habit feels as as compelling. It feels as creates the cravings that are as strong as any physical addiction. That's because habits have, have this enormous power. Boy, which so then begs
1: the question, are we slaves to our habits? I mean, I saw a study, I think it was in your book, actually saying that we spend more than 40% of our precious waking hours engaged in habitual <laughs> actions, according to this Duke University study. I mean, basically, we're, we're zombies, or at least we're on autopilot most <laughs> of the time.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, almost half our day, it, the decisions we make aren't actually decisions they're habits. But to answer your question, no, we're not slaves to them, because... We know how to change these habits, right? Once you understand how the habit loop works, once you understand that there's a cue and there's a reward, you can begin diagnosing your habits and you can begin reshaping them.
1: I've been talking with Charles Duhigg, journalist and author of The Power of Habit. Thanks for listening to How on Earth. And now, back to Charles Duhigg. So, could you walk us through in a personal sense? I like, know you describe very um revealingly about your chocolate cookie <laughs> addiction or exactly. or strong habit. So, the way this would work, showing that we're not slaves to our habits. You apparently underwent quite a change yourself.
2: Yeah, so I had this bad habit of, of as you mentioned, going up. And mm-hmm. I would basically eat a chocolate cookie every afternoon, right? And I started putting on some weight as a result. Um, like, not a little bit of weight. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it, and and so, so when I was talking to psychologists reporting the book, I would, you know, my last question would always be, by the way, I was wondering if you could tell me how to fix my habit. <laughs> and so, so what they said is the, the, key to, the key to changing that pattern is you have to diagnose the cue and the reward. So I started with the cue. And and what I did is I I kept careful notes on when this cookie urge would strike. And what I figured out pretty quickly was it always hit at about between 3.15 and 3.45 in the afternoon. It was a time of day that was my cue. And then I tried to figure out what the reward was. And and when you think about it, like, I thought that the reward was just eating a chocolate chip cookie because they're tasty. But, But the funny thing about rewards is they're actually much more complicated than they appear on the surface. Like... Was it that, that I was hungry, in which case an apple should should be just as good, or was it that I was looking forward, I was craving sort of this this burst of energy that sugar provides, in which case a coffee should do the trick, or I just needed a break, in which case, you know, taking a walk around the building should be should work just as well. I, I did all these little experiments and what I figured yeah. out was that the reason why I was craving a cookie was because when I went up to the cafeteria I always just chatted with other people. It was it was my chance to kind of ca- catch up on gossip and socialize. Once I knew what the cue was at time of day and the reward was socializing with other people, I could redesign the habit. And now every day at 3.30, I kind of stand up from my desk and look for someone to go gossip with and go gossip with them and then go back to my desk and <laughs> so, the cookie are just totally gone.
1: So if I got this correct, so you, the the cue is the same, the reward is the same, and you manage to figure that out so you could change the routine part of that. That's routine, exactly right?
2: right. And that's what's known as the golden rule of habit change. Mm-hmm. This has been shown in study after study. If you want to change a habit... And you can't eradicate habits. Once it's in your neurology, it's there. All you can do is change it. And in fact, because of the way our neurology works, basically neural pathways get thicker and thicker and thicker the more that they're used. And so the one thing that we do know about habits is that it's going to be easier on day three than it is on day one. And it's going to be easier on day 21 than it was on day three. The more you kind of have a consistent cue, the more that you deliver a reward for a particular pattern of behavior, the easier and easier it'll get, until at one point, at some point, it's just going to feel automatic.
1: To like, Why do we form these habits? Neurologically, and actually biologically, evolutionarily speaking, there, there is a, a really significant purpose.
2: Yeah, no, and and most habits are good, right? I mean, most habits are the things that let us get make it through the day. Mm-hmm. If you had to think about everything you did, if you had to concentrate on backing the car out of the driveway and then remembering how to get to work, and then when it was time for lunch you had to make a conscious decision, okay, I'm going to eat this and not that. If we if our mind didn't have the ability to form habits and basically move Move cognition from the base, from the prefrontal cortex, where we make decisions, to the basal ganglia, which is in the center of the brain, and, and it is where habits live. It, our days, basically, people would be overwhelmed by minutiae every day, right? We never would have crawled out of the ocean because it would have just been too hard to keep track of what we're supposed to eat. This this capacity to form habits is amazing. It mm-hmm. it has made mammals and a number of other species enormously successful. But the problem is that. Our brain will try and make any regular pattern into a habit. There's a natural instinct to try and think less because our brain knows that it's more efficient. And so sometimes bad habits sneak in. And sometimes, sometimes the trouble with habits is that we do things that don't have any common sense behind them because we've stopped thinking. Right. And that's why understanding our habits, being able to diagnose them and change them as we choose, that's why it's so important.
1: So it's fascinating. I love the way you focus, or at least a lot of these studies focus as well, on the positive reward versus the negative punishment.
2: Well, what we know from from neur- neurological studies is that positive rewards are much more effective at building habits than negative punishments. Now, now this is just actually a quirk, kind of a quirk of neurology, right? It, it could as easily been the other way around. But in experiments, we know that when you when you positively reinforce someone for a behavior, that the habit grows much faster and much stronger than if you punish them for doing something wrong.
1: And as a parent, are you going to test?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think any parent knows that, right? right. If, if I, You know, I mean, look, you give your kid a spanking and they're going to kind of learn that lesson. But the key to really developing new behaviors is that you give them positive reinforcements around the behavior that you want to reward. And all of a sudden, that behavior becomes more and more automatic. So
1: I know at the end of the book, you give all readers some kind of framework, basically a, a personal takeaway. So if there's one thing you suggest to listeners, if they do want to take away, and probably in most cases we fixate on the, the sort of negative habits, well, what, what do you think is a really appropriate way to serve them?
2: Well, the, 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 I, what hopefully what people carry away from this book is the understanding that what we've learned is that any, anyone can change or create new habits. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how stuck in your ways you are. It doesn't matter how ingrained the behavior is. Once you understand, once you understand this framework for how habits work, you can begin tinkering with the parts. And if you identify a cue and a reward for a new behavior, you can develop any habit you want. You can exercise more. You can procrastinate less. You can work more efficiently. You can also change any habit, right? If you've been smoking for 20 years, you can quit. You can change that habit. We know. That
1: was New York Times writer Charles Duhigg, author of the new book, The Power of Habit. You can find an extended version of the interview on our website, howonearthradio.org, later today.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Shelley Schlender is our executive producer.
1: The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Le Mystère des Voix, Boulgare, and Peter Gabriel.
0: Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.